This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. So, welcome back. We've had our little break. We're continuing to talk about religious liberty issues. Uh, We just talked about the questions of liberty and morality, pointing out that there's a balance, that society needs to have freedom and liberties, especially as to conscience and expression, but that without a certain amount of morality, you can't have even a society, and that there is a legitimate role, as Ellen White and our pioneers showed, in trying to protect society from excesses, not making them more spiritual, Uh, but keeping society um, an environment where kids can be raised and not be fearful of being beaten by drunken fathers or uh, killed on the roads in car crashes uh, driven by by drunks. And that's why they stood up and stood in favor of prohibition and temperance. Now, in this session, we're going to talk a little bit more prophetically about the future, about Sunday laws, And sometimes there seems that Adventists become so focused on Sunday laws that it becomes the only thing that we're concerned with in politics or in prophecy. Um, We're going to look, again, at this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, more recently our own Adventist pioneers to help get a better understanding of this. And the question that I'm trying to ask earlier in the week, and here's, uh, I didn't do so well with the text messages this time because I had my phone in my, in my coat, but I've got it out now. And if you want to send me a text ne- message during the session, I'll try to answer it at the end, but hopefully we'll have a few minutes to talk um, live. Um, let's just uh, say another word of prayer to start this new session and uh, bless our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the guidebook that it is for the future, uh, for the, uh, our eyes that can be opened uh, to the contest that is coming and that we are already in uh, for the principles found in God's word. And maybe we, we be faithful through your grace to those principles is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So... The question is, the great controversy. I dealt with that as a theme a couple of days ago, but there's another question that's often asked about the great controversy, and this is usually about the book rather than about the theme itself. Is the end-time scenario found in the great controversy still applicable today? There are some people, even some Adventist theologians, who say, It was conditional prophecy. It only made sense in the time that it was written. Time has moved on, and the final events will unfold in some other kind of way and may not involve Sunday laws or anything like that at all. Um, Now, no one seems to question whether it will involve a time of political and economic crisis, right? You don't even have to be an Adventist to be concerned about a time of political and economic crisis, It seems like most of the uh, leading economists in the world, here we are poised on the fiscal cliff. And uh, who knows what's... Have we we reached a deal yet? I've been away from the TV, so I'm not sure. They were working away at it. It's not... You don't have to go scouring the Internet to find rumors of economic collapse, do you? The uh, people are talking about it on uh, Meet the Press and the other TV shows. A year ago, I had the privilege of going to Florence to lecture at the Adventist College in Florence, and I and my wife went down to spend two or three days in Rome, and I had uh, some friends in Southern California who had a distant relative who worked for the Vatican. Uh, He was a leading administrator in the office of the Congregation of the Saints, which is a very interesting office. It is the office in the Vatican that prepares people for sainthood. <clears throat> so I thought I'd go and see if I could get an inside track on what it would take. And uh, my wife said I just didn't have a chance, but <clears throat> you never know. 
uh, I was actually more seriously interested in how they dealt with questions of history and miracles, because that's my main role in life. I'm a historian now, and I'm a historian who believes in providence and miracles. And so here's a whole office. Did you know that to be a saint, it has to be proven that you have carried out, caused a miracle? Do you know this? So you better get working uh, on your miracle. But, but the catch to it is this, and this is what I learned only when I went to Rome, is that to be a saint, you have to do this miracle, and this is the tricky part, after you've died. Okay? It's not good enough to do it while you're alive. It has to be after you've died. And you know the reason for this is because this is the proof that you're actually in the presence of God. Because saints are those who are so you know, pure and holy, they don't have to go through purgatory. They immediately go directly to heaven to the presence of God. So if you pray to this saint, then, and the prayer is answered and there's a miracle, it shows that this person is in the presence of God. So <clears throat> I don't know if that relates to my topic or not, but uh, it could be an important piece of information for you at some point. <laughs> And, uh, but I always wondered, why would you pray, if you were sick or something, why would you pray to someone that you weren't sure was a saint? Because, in fact, you, you, could, you can only pray to the one person. Because if you pray to three people, two people that are saints and one person who would like to be a saint, then you don't know who answered the prayer. So you have to pray to someone who's been nominated to, to, to be a saint. But why take risks? You know, if you're sick, you, you think you would pray to us. Anyway, I'm not sure. I think it has to do with if your local priest is going to be a saint, is being nominated, and you knew that guy, then there's more of a chance he may listen to your prayer. So I think it kind of becomes a personal relationship thing, um, which, is, uh, which is interesting. But the conversation got even more interesting when they, I was speaking with this Catholic, um, he was a Monsignor, Monsignor, and he was there with his friend who was a professor at Gregorian University, and they, of their own volition, talked about, started talking about the economic crisis in Europe, and said, you know, you've been seeing the news and what's going on, and uh, they said, you know, we think that the church is going to have to play a special role in these events. Uh, there needs to be a worldwide economic stability and authority. And they indicated to us that there would be something big coming out in the next week or two on this topic. And one week later, the Pope released a letter on the economic crisis calling for a one-world economic authority to help impose a moral good on the uh, economies of societies. And you know, the scary thing about the whole story is not that, you know, we know that this is prophecy being fulfilled, right? But the scary thing about it is as I looked at the situation and listened to them and read the Pope's letter, I came to the conclusion that actually the Pope seems to be right. Right? What does he write about? Not necessarily write about who should be in charge, you know, he's obviously wanting the Vatican to, to be overseeing this thing. But why are we in the mess we're in economically, if not because economic institutions of various kinds have acted in their own greedy self-interest and not in the larger moral interests of society and the good of society? And there needs to be a reform. And this is the complicated position we find ourselves in as Adventists, needing to be able to speak in positive ways about how we fix some of these problems, even moral problems in society, and yet doing so in a way that doesn't walk into the kind of spiritual coercion that we know various religious groups are capable of. And we need to become much more thoughtful, I think, rather than just reactionary. There are problems in our world that thoughtful religious people are saying, we need to fix and if all we say is, no, don't fix them, don't fix them, don't fix them, because it's going to lead to intolerance, we're just going to become an irrelevant voice in the discussion. We need to learn to think in a more careful way about what it is we can speak to positively, what can government and society do to actually help stem some of its moral problems, but without going too far into spiritual uh, legislation and legislation regarding worship. But... 
to get onto this question that we're faced, we've talked about the liberal and the fundamentalist influences in society, and on this question of the great controversy, uh, we're faced, again, with two extremes, I would suggest. There's the liberal impulse, which says, Ellen White wrote the great controversy in the 1880s, and it reflects that era's concern with the Catholic Church and Sunday laws, but times change and issues change, and so has the application of the mark of the beast and the seal of God. I'd call this group the minimalists. They believe the principles still apply, there's going to be some kind of coercion regarding spiritual matters, but who knows what it's going to be. But then there's another side to it, and this is one that, that maybe we're more part of or, or, or more tempted by. Fundamentalist impulse. That Ellen White's great controversy scenario was divinely inspired in all details, and not only must it come true in the manner described, now I believe all that that I've read so far, but then this is the problem, but it contains a description of all the issues, problems, and tests that we'll be concerned with in the end of time. I call these the totalizers, that, the, that what's been set out in the great controversy scenario is everything we need to be concerned with. And this can be just as problematic as the other view. Because if the Bible actually allows that there are going to be other sorts of challenges and problems, then we're focused on this one question, missing out on other tests and problems that we should be trying to deal with. And history shows that Adventists have done this already in various parts of the world. But I want to speak to the liberal impulse first as a historian. While I was researching my uh, dissertation um, down at Notre Dame, I came across in the electronic archives a document that I think people have heard of before, but hasn't seriously been discussed in any Adventist literature that I'm aware of, and um, I've shared it with some uh, folks in some ministries, and so I know it's been put online since then, and you may have seen it and heard of it, uh, a book um, from the 17th century uh, by a 17th century called Thomas Tillam. Now, to set this up, I need to... Uh, suggest or, or, or set out the great controversy talks about Sunday laws, the book, right? And the first version of that is written in 1888 when there were Sunday laws pending on the floor of Congress. And so the liberals will say, well, look, this is just reflecting what was happening then. And yet, as Adventists, are you aware, who came up with our understanding of the seal of God and the mark of the beast and Sabbath Sunday conflict? Do you know? It wasn't Miller, because William Miller wasn't a Sabbath keeper, but it was Joseph Bates. And you can go and find uh, some pamphlets of his from about 1849, 1850, where he begins to talk about Sabbath and Sunday in terms of the seal of God and the mark of the beast. So that's about 30 years earlier than Ellen White, before there are Sunday laws pending in Congress. So in some ways it helps respond to this liberal claim that Ellen White's just writing about her day. No, it wasn't her idea. She, in fact, knew Joseph Bates and, and, and was continuing that line of understanding. But in going to the um, archives of the library, I discovered um, it's uh, Lee of Froome, Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, who sets this out and credits Joseph Bates with uh, coming up with this. But Froome is wrong. Bates may have come up with this on his own. He may not have, but it's clear that these ideas were come up with earlier, much earlier. And this book by Thomas Tillam, not 100 years, but 200 years before Ellen White was writing, this is in the 1650s. He writes a book, and in those days they had long titles to their books. And this whole page is the title of the book. <laughs> It's, if you write the title, you didn't have to write the book after that. Uh, the Seventh-day Sabbath sought out and celebrated, or the saints' last design upon the man of sin with their advance of God's first institution to its primitive perfection, being a clear discovery of that black character in the head of the little horn, Daniel 7.25, the change of times and laws with the Christian's glorious conquest over that mark of the beast and the recovery of the long-slighted seventh day to its ancient glory. 200 years before the great controversy was written, before Joseph Bates uh, wrote his books. Now, I don't know if 
Joseph Bates read Thomas Tillam, it doesn't really matter for my purposes. I think what this helps show is that it's impossible to claim that an understanding of Daniel and Revelation as we, as is set out in the great controversy, is only a product of the 1880s. We see it's a product of the 1850s as well, and the 1650s, 200 years earlier. Now again, just because Thomas Tillam said it, and he's a Seventh-day Baptist, doesn't mean it's true. But I'm appealing to him as a witness, if you will. He is a witness who read the Bible in this way at another time, in another place, in another location, and it makes it more probable that we're not crazy reading it that way ourselves, that we're not just captured by our own time and place and culture. His book, if you begin reading it, uh, a couple of other paragraphs that are very interesting. The Seventh-day Sabbath is the title of chapter one, sought out and celebrated by saints obtaining the victory over the mark of the beast. And then that chapter begins with this paragraph. The first royal law that ever Jehovah instituted and for our example celebrated, namely his blessed seventh-day Sabbath, is in these very last days become the last great controversy between the saints and the man of sin, the changer of times and laws. The last great controversy. Where have we heard that before? But 200 years earlier. So, you know... And I'm not meaning to imply here that Ellen White is even more of a plagiarist than we thought, right? I mean, that's not the point here. The point is that she's writing in a grand prophetic tradition. Uh, She's building on it. She's adding to it. But she's not just making it up out of whole cloth at her time and her place. So that's part of my response to what the liberals claim about this Uh, story and about the great controversy theme. It's not Ellen White you're just wrestling with. It's a whole Protestant prophetic heritage and tradition that stretches back for hundreds of years that we have to grapple with and take seriously. Now, on the other side of it, on the fundamentalist side of it, on seeing only this as the issue of, of being content with the book, The Great Controversy, being our translator or interpreter of the book of Revelation... You know, we don't need to study Revelation and Daniel for ourselves because Ellen White tells us what it means. That sometimes, we don't really say that, but it's a trap we can fall into practically. You know, if it's not there in the great controversy, then it doesn't matter. Let me tell you what happened in Germany to Adventists who took this approach. Um, As late as the 1940s, in Germany, after the Kristallnacht attack on the Jews, after the invasion of Czechoslovakia and Poland. In other words, after both Hitler's virulent racism and warmongering aggression were on full display, church publications praised Hitler as a servant of God, working in Christian humility, who at important times when he could celebrate with his people, he gave God and heaven honor and recognized his dependence upon God's blessings. Hitler was a vegetarian. But more than that, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, yeah, it's funny if it wasn't so sad that we would support someone who was so obviously unjust, unfair, and even evil to citizens in Germany. And it wasn't primarily the vegetarianism thing, but more to the point was our understanding of prophecy. And Hitler was pretty much anti-Catholic, and he was anti-communism. And Adventists were happy about both these points. Hitler, the the German army, also made accommodation for Sabbath-keeping for Seventh-day Adventists to attend church on Saturday mornings. And because our view of the end times was sort of limited to Sabbath-Sunday conflict and the Catholic Church... You know, here we had Hitler, who was really kind of anti-Catholic, and he seemed to be accommodating our Sabbath. So from a religious liberty perspective, everything was sort of okay. What else was there to be worried about? And unfortunately, it's a very sad era in our church's history when the Germans came and said, you need to turn over the lists of your churches of anyone who is Jewish or has a Jewish background. Turned over the lists and turned over the members. Um, the confessing church in Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others, drew a line in the sand and said they would not. They didn't understand the Sabbath-Sunday conflict. They didn't understand some other things, but they understood the moral teachings of the Bible in some ways more clearly 
than we did. And I would suggest that in part it has to do with a sort of a monomaniacal focus on a particular literal view of prophecy which showed that we didn't really understand the principles behind the prophecy. Now, I'm not saying this to be hard on the church in Germany because we weren't there and we can't judge their hearts and their motives. And the fact is, a few years ago, the German church leadership issued an apology for the actions taken during World War II. The point is, is to learn lessons from history and to make sure that we don't repeat what happened then. Although I forgot to uh, finish the, the, the quote. This humility has made him great, and this greatness was the source of blessing from which he always gave for his people. This was from the Morning Watch calendar for April 1940, published by, um, and translated by Edwin Seeker, who was a professor at Southwestern Adventist University, who has a whole article on things said about Hitler by the Adventist uh, publications during that time. But it's a good thing that we wouldn't do the same thing today, right? That we would overlook moral issues that touch directly on questions of church and state and human morality uh, because we were so fascinated with Sunday laws. Or could we? Do we have a view of last-day events that involves a small, unpopular religious minority being marginalized in society, uh, being put into prison, having various constitutional rights deprived from them, maybe their religious materials taken and burned, um, habeas corpus done away with. Couldn't happen, could it? Or has it already happened in some ways? In a war on terror that um, most of us haven't said a lot about, it really doesn't affect most of us. But those things have happened. Not just in the way that we had thought they would happen, but it's already changed the laws and the precedents of our country in ways which make it much more likely and much easier for it to happen again legally in the future. But is it that that we're only concerned with, the fact that it could happen to us again in the future? Or should we care about it even happening now? Use of torture, special rendition, campaign of assassinations against so-called terrorists. We've talked further about attacks on the Fifth and the Seventh Commandment, gay rights and the marriage movement. We've gotten involved a little bit, but we're far and away from giving it the kind of time and attention and energy that we would give to a Sunday law if that ever came out. It's like this deep character flaw we have as Adventists for some reason. We will scour the depths of the internet for the least hint of a rumor of Sunday laws, the, most, the least credible sources, rumors, second, third, fourth hand, say, look, here it is. And we'll ignore front page headlines in our newspapers talking about secret places of torture, enhanced interrogation that has now become a euphemism for conduct that we ourselves as a government used to call torture when other nations did it. And now we want to quibble over what we call torture. But if we just held ourselves to the standards that we used to hold other nations to, we would know what we are doing. And the thing that concerns me most about all of this is that while we understand Sunday laws and the mark of the beast, do we really? Do we really understand the principles involved? Why does it matter whether you worship on the first or the seventh day? Is it just about a day of the week? Or is there a principle involved about human authority stepping in and playing a role that is reserved for God, right? Assuming to themselves prerogatives that are reserved only to God and oppressing people because of it. Now, is it possible to do that in ways other than Sabbath and Sunday laws? In fact, it's sometimes even more evident uh, when these things happen. Christ reminded Pilate that Pilate was a steward of power. It wasn't his power he was using. He was expected to use it according to principles of fairness and justice. And in Germany, when the government began rounding innocent people up just based on their nationality or their ethnicity, their religious views... 
putting them in concentration camps and killing them. They were stepping into this role of being God, of playing God, and misusing the power and authority that was given to them. And they were doing this in ways that violated the principles of Sabbath Sunday laws. It just wasn't that issue. But why didn't we see the same principle involved? And are we willing and able to see those similar principles involved today in these questions? People created in the image of God that are misused or mistreated or tortured, um, does that not invoke the principles that we are concerned with when we're talking about Sabbath and Sunday? And do we lose our credibility and our ability to talk about those principles if we say nothing now and wait until then? I think this is a question, these are questions that should challenge us all. So, there's two temptations we face. There's the liberal temptation to ignore prophecy and its fulfillment because we're too sophisticated and scientific for such superstition. And then there's the fundamentalist. We become crisis-centered rather than Christ-centered. Uh, we focus on the literal details we've been given. And I don't want to discount that. You know that I believe in the great controversy end time scenario. I just don't think it's exhaustive. It doesn't tell us everything. Ellen White wasn't meant given as a substitute for our own continued Bible study. And she wouldn't hold herself out as that way. But unfortunately, intending to focus on these details as being the only way, we've actually opened ourselves up to what I would describe as conspiracy theorists who take Adventist prophecy and then build onto it stories about groups and society, secret groups and the Illuminati and the Masons and the Jesuits who are always just around the corner ready to bring in these final events. There's always something else, something exciting going on that only these people know about and it diverts the time and attention of many of our conservative communities uh, to these speculative uh, interpretations of history, taking our eyes off from the real, real things that are occurring around us. For some reason, Adventism has shown itself to have a susceptibility to conspiracy theories over my lifetime. And I want to spend a last few minutes sharing with you some of my concerns in that regard um, because I think that it has detracted and made us less capable of taking our prophetic principles and applying them to real things happening in the real world. And too many of our members are spinning their wheels on speculative and downright crazy um, ideas about uh, conspiracies for which there is little evidence. And I'm going to become more specific um, in a moment here in, in talking about some of these. Um, when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, there was a guy called John Todd, Johnny Todd, who was all the rage in Adventism, talking about spiritualism and the Illuminati and how they were controlling the world and bringing about the time of the end. And after a few years, it was discovered it was more or less a hoax and these things had been made up. But shortly after he went away, there's a name you probably are more familiar with, Walter Weiff, uh, who spreads similar stories through videos and through his presentations that are quite popular in many conservative circles about the Illuminati, about Masons, about... Um, uh, small forces controlling our government, controlling our history. And then probably the, even the younger generation, uh, some videos I've begun watching recently to assess them. Christopher Hudson of the Forerunner Chronicles. Uh, he gained the limelight recently when he interviewed this uh, actor, Angus Jones, I believe is his name, who's also been interviewed by Faith for Today, and I don't want to say anything negative about Angus Jones here. He seems like a very sincere young man who's just had a conversion experience and is beginning to find his way in Adventism um, and uh, is unsurprisingly, you know, finds some interesting things here and there and everywhere and was, was interviewed by Christopher Hudson. And the interview itself was, was fine, but in looking at some of the other videos that many Adventists are promoting and becoming associated with, it's clear that there's a conspiracy theory agenda going on there, 
Um, some of the conspiracy theories involve the government is controlled by elite secret societies. The last election was rigged, for instance. The result was known ahead of time. Um, Walter Weith has supported 9-11 conspiracy theories where the government is responsible for or at least knew about ahead of time the destruction that would happen on 9-11. These are very bold claims for which there is really no meaningful evidence. And I take these things very seriously. I was actually in New York on 9-11. I worked for a Washington, D.C. law firm that had offices in the World Trade Center. And I was there two weeks earlier and had worked in the World Trade Center. I came back two weeks later and was at Midtown completing a trial and watched as my offices, we had five floors of offices in the World Trade Center as it collapsed. And so I take this whole thing very seriously. And if there was you know, any truth uh, to the claim that the government was involved with this, it would be you know, the greatest scandal and tragedy in American history. And it would be an accusation that our government leaders were mass murderers of the worst kind. Um, and something should be done about it. But we shouldn't pass along this kind of information unless we absolutely know for sure. Now these videos go on for hours and hours and hours and it would take dozens of hours to detail their historical and factual errors. But what I've done, I have 15 minutes. So what I've done is I've put together five principles that I believe that these gentlemen overlook in carrying out their theories. And I want to be very careful here. I'm not saying many of the things that these gentlemen say are true. They use Adventist prophecy and prophetic perspectives. But in some ways, that's what makes it easier to lure in lots of Adventists to the rest of their stories. And I'm also not saying they're con men or lying. I have no way to judge their hearts. They could be sincere and sincerely misguided in some of the things they believe. Um, And I'm certainly willing to dialogue with them on these points. But I'm convinced that there is a problem here. And in the spirit in which Paul wrote to Timothy, in his day, he said, there are those among us who pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which I would define as the tracing of hidden secret connections, which give rise to mere speculations and draw away from the gospel of Christ and draw away from the legitimate Adventist prophetic message. In a sense, they are hijacking Adventist prophecy, using it to lure in Adventist believers, but then misusing it to sell conspiracy theories of history, most of which you can find from non-Adventist sources. You go out on the internet, and it's like they've trolled and found all the conspiracy theories you can think of, and then they wrap it in to the great controversy story. And that will destroy our credibility with people in society who are informed and intelligent and educated and know that it's all a crock. And we need to be careful, and we need to be thoughtful. And I want to share five principles with you that will save you from having to watch hundreds of hours of videotape. Because there's so many details that to try to unearth it all and disprove every little point would take you a lifetime. But there are four or five major points that will enable you to decide, to to help distinguish whether somebody is a legitimate historian and student of prophecy or whether they are engaged in conspiracy peddling. And I want to start by acknowledging that conspiracies exist, okay? We have laws that take care of conspiracies, criminal conspiracies, price fixing, political intrigue, obviously happens, and laws exist to oppose them. But those aren't the kind of conspiracies that are being sold um, by these kinds of uh, DVDs and videotapes. Rather, they are grand conspiracy theories, arguments that small groups control and cause major historical events over extended periods of time in almost complete secrecy. Except, of course, if you spend 1995 and get their latest DVDs because they know all about them somehow. Um, here are the five principles that I'm going to walk through here in the next few minutes. Proportionality of cause and effect. The difficulty or even impossibility of widespread secrecy for a large event. Claims about the unbelievable efficiency and evil of the state. 
Um, the fact that these conspiracy theories are set up in such a way that you cannot disprove them. There's no evidence you can bring. All the evidence, in fact, is turned on its head to confirm them. And then I'll talk about the one true grand conspiracy theory uh, that the Bible does support. But let's talk about cause and effect for a moment. A basic principle of both science and history is that an effect can be no bigger than its cause. If you throw a rock into a pond, there are going to be ripples, and those ripples will differ in size depending on how big the rock is, right? Um, and science is largely dependent on this idea, as is history. And the Bible supports this. The book of Ecclesiastes in Proverbs recognizes a natural world in which cause and effect play out. A good example is this uh, uh, passage in Ecclesiastes. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Whether a tree falls toward the south or towards the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. I've read those passages in the past and wondered, well, what does it mean? Of course there it lies. But it's a claim that a, such a thing as nature exists, a world of cause and effect that's not pushed around by spirits or animism or um, magic happens. It's not denying that God can do miracles, but God is a greater force uh, and, and would explain the miracle. What it indicates is that there's a proportionality and a consistency of cause and effect in nature. And this basic principle is violated whenever a claim is made that some small secret group of people, such as the Masons, the Illuminati, the Trilateral Commission, the Jesuits, etc., effectively cause or control major events of history, such as wars, economic crises, depressions, and the like. If this was true, if sort of one or two or three or very small group could determine and the outcome of everything that happens, you couldn't do history. You wouldn't know what caused and affect things. Uh, the great controversy book that Ellen White wrote where she uses historians you just couldn't tell whether it was true or not. The whole field of history um, would be undermined and there would be no basis for it. Now, it's not saying that individual actors don't matter. Yes, they do. Can you have an effect on history? You can. But the big events that small individuals seem to cause are what we would call catalysts. So you may have heard of World War I, a really big event, right? And we point to the trigger of that event as being the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand of Austria, which is when uh, the hostilities began to break out. But was World War I really caused by one lone assassin who came and shot the emperor? Or was it caused by a long-term, large-scale series of events involving the countries of Europe and their greed, expansionism, and colonialism that caused great tensions and jealousies and divides and this assassination event triggered the latent tensions and hostilities that already existed, right? So you see the difference. Yes, individuals can make a difference and an impact, but they're not the ones actually single-handedly causing these large events. Grand conspiracy theories undermine the possibility of any meaningful knowledge of history. These theories become a kind of Gnosticism, secret knowledge only available to the elite or those willing to buy the DVDs impossibility of widespread secrecy. Grand conspiracy theories assume that lots of people will remain entirely silent about some of the most profound and darkest secrets of history. Ecclesiastes recognizes the difficulty of keeping secrets. In your bedchamber, do not curse the king, and in your sleeping room, do not curse a rich man. For the bird of heaven still carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. It's hard to keep secrets even in your own house. Now, the claims say that 9-11 was orchestrated by the government, carried out. It would require dozens of people in different departments of the government to have been involved, perhaps hundreds of government workers, and they would now hold one of the most explosive secrets of the 20th century, if not all of history, in their hands. And you know how valuable that would be? How much would a press outlet pay for that if it was true? It would be worth hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, this claim that people can hold these things secret is very contrary to human nature. And in fact, we use this as a positive argument for the resurrection of Christ. You know, if, if Christ really wasn't raised, and it was just a conspiracy among the, uh, the 12 disciples, somebody really wouldn't say anything? 
Um, Chuck Colson, the former White House counsel for Richard Nixon, said, you know, we were there in that room, four or five most powerful men in the world. The White House, with all the assets of the U.S. government at our disposal, and we had this secret about the recordings that had been made surreptitiously about the water uh, 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 gate break-in. And we couldn't keep that secret among ourselves. It came out. Um, Big secrets, big conspiracies require groups of people with incredibly explosive information. And, you know, Watergate, the Lincoln assassination, the Holocaust all show the impossibility of even small groups of very powerful people covering up large or small secrets. Small secrets can remain secret for long periods of time, but usually they come out. Very big secrets can remain secret for very short periods of time, but eventually they come out. And in this day and age of WikiLeaks, when everything's coming out, and people are paid by the tabloids, hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars, who write tell-all books as soon as the campaign is over, you know, the guy that took down bin Laden, one of these special operatives who've always had this oath of secrecy and loyalty, Well, you've seen his book probably on Barnes & Noble, uh, the the shelves out there. You just can't keep these things secret. It implies an unbelievable efficiency and secrecy of the state. Now, I work for the government, and I suppose if you're a conspiracy theorist, then that's why I'm telling this story, because I'm covering this all up. Um, I work for the government in Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia government. And let me tell you this about governments. They're just not that good. They're just not efficient enough to carry out these big events uh, as well as they come off and keep them secret. We can hardly carry off events that everybody knows about. Um, But neither are they that bad. Most of the people that work for the government, yeah, they're getting a paycheck, but they're not there to harm people. They're there basically to do a job and and to serve the public. You know, Romans 13 reminds us that governments are ordained of God and that God rules and, 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 uh, and, and works through them. Now, can there be bad governments? Did we have a Hitler? Yes, it can happen. But that was an open and notorious thing. This wasn't a surreptitious. And not all the government was as evil as Hitler. If you've seen the movie Valkyrie Plot, if you've read the Bonhoeffer book, you know there were people in government working against Hitler, trying to indeed assassinate him. The government was, um, was very divided in a sense. They are not good at efficiency in widespread organization and secrecy. Uh, to invoke 9-11 again, the state would have, not, have to not only carry out the events, but make it appear that what they were carried out by someone else, all the while, while keeping both their involvement in the event and the cover-up a complete secret. Just no government that I know of is capable of that. And, of course, they're generally not that bad. Now, it's different to say they let no crisis go unwasted. It's true. The government has a crisis, and it says, well, look, we can use this to gain further political advantage, to pass the laws we want to pass. That's true. That happens all the time. But it's very different to say the government created the crisis. Now, sometimes that can happen, but especially when it comes to these larger claims about killing hundreds or thousands of innocent people, Think about the political risk involved with that. We could be understood and seen as mass murderers, or we could gain some small political advantage. Oh, that's a good calculation, isn't it? You know, it just doesn't pass. uh, You you could have a madman in charge of the government, Saddam Hussein and others, but it's usually hard to keep the fact that they're mad secret very long. You also have these theories generally not susceptible to contrary evidence. The fact that there's not evidence for them is merely further evidence that the evidence has been covered up and obscured by both the media and the government, right? And so you're never able to get at these things. And what it becomes clear is that these are matters of faith. And usually you've been drawn in because many of these people start with the Adventist prophetic heritage and message and Sunday laws and things you believe in. So we have faith in that. And then they rely on that faith to tack these other things on for which there is no meaningful evidence. It's a very clever lawyer's trick. But let's talk about the one true grand conspiracy theory, because we have to acknowledge that there is one. The Bible reveals that the world is a battleground in a universe-wide spiritual conflict. 
The conflict is not of human origins, but is guided by supernatural principalities and powers. But these same scriptures also reveal that both God and Satan do much of their work, not directly, but through ordinary secondary causes. That we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And both God and Satan appear, for the most part, to work through human agencies. God works through his church. Satan has institutions that he influences and works with. But their working in these areas seems to follow uh, the sort of cause and effect that we can understand through history, which these grand conspiracy theories violate. And I think it's an important point to remember as Christians that these conspiracy theories often involve, at best, gossip, and at worst, defamation and even sedition, uh, which is not right, which is not Christian. Claiming that certain government leaders and officials intentionally killed or knowingly allowed to be killed thousands of innocent people is a hideous and defamatory claim unless you have actual, meaningful, verifiable evidence of this, like we have with the Holocaust but which we don't have with 9-11. It just doesn't exist. And as Christians, we should resist the temptation to carry it out. There's lots of actual historical reasons to be unhappy with George Bush and some of his policies, as there are lots of good and actual historical reasons to be unhappy with Obama and some of his policies. But let's not accuse George Bush of being a mass murderer of thousands of innocent Americans, or even imply it in the things that we say or that Obama is a covert, secret Muslim, or socialist, or fascist. I mean, these things are all very different, and his policies are really those of a kind of secular American who went to Columbia University, and are explainable by those things, not that he's a closet, you know, fill-in-the-blank that you can't actually prove. At worst, it can be the basis for actual sedition against the government and be used as the basis for legal and criminal action against the group associated with it. David Koresh created a self-fulfilling prophecy when he said the government is militaristic, it's against us, we need to get guns to defend ourselves. So they got a lot of illegal, semiotic, and automatic weapons and created a self-fulfilling prophecy and became a seditious movement that the government had to... I mean, I'm not defending the way the government moved against uh, uh, Koresh and Waco, but at its worst, these sort of conspiracy theories can lead to these outcomes. And if you were there at my first presentation, when I was at Newbold College many years ago, I knew two or three individuals who ended up being lured into these conspiracy theories and who actually died at Waco. And that's part of the reason I'm so willing to talk about all this so openly today and even to name names and talk about uh, particular claims. Because I feel strongly this is dangerous both for our physical life in this world as well as our spiritual lives as well. So we need to pray for wisdom as we seek the Holy Spirit's guidance in holding on to the principles of our prophetic message, not trading it in to be a politically correct or intellectually respectable or modern church, but also in not distorting it by letting the letter obscure the spirit of the message, uh, focusing on the letter and missing other conflicts that could involve the same principles of abuse of power that we should also speak up against. So, that's the end of my formal presentation here. I think I'm already like two minutes over, but I'll be willing to answer questions for three or four minutes. If you need to go, you need to go. Um, but uh, we can try to answer a few questions. Let me see if I've got some texts. So there's a question here about the change from Sabbath to Sunday consists of one of the greatest conspiracies that has been pulled off and fly in the face of your five ways to detect conspiracy. Ah, challenge. Well, I mean, the fact is is that we know that it happened and there's historical evidence for it. And, um, you know, you can read books by Bakayoki or, you know, there's there's a historical process that explains why and who and when. It's just a little bit older and, and, and long ago, um, but the people who, who did it are not continuing to, say, orchestrate events in the world today in a secret way. The Vatican continues to have influence, but we see that influence. He releases letters. He has meetings. Are things happening behind closed doors? I'm sure there are, but uh, I just don't view that, the changing of Sabbath and Sunday, to be the same kind of secret, grand conspiracy 
that's being argued for here. That's something we can investigate historically and have done. Well, you know, I think, again, we know from, from prophecy and from the spirit of prophecy that there are various churches that have agendas for the future, and these churches haven't been secret about that. The Pope has written letters in favor of Sunday laws. I don't have a problem taking him at his word that he wants to support Sunday laws. But, um, you know, we like to pick on the poor Jesuits, but the fact is we need to keep our theories up with the times the Jesuits are now a very liberal part of the Catholic Church, and the Pope actually has trouble bringing them in line, and they've kind of become liberal. Uh, Georgetown University is a Jesuit university, and um, in hearing about the classes there, they have a very liberal approach to both Catholicism and Christianity. There's other groups in Catholicism that I would be more concerned with, like Opus D, Opus Die. I'm not quite sure which way it's, it's pronounced. But, um, you know, the Jesuits did an awful lot in Europe in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries. And if you read Ellen White about the Jesuits, you will find her talking historically about some of their abuses. But I can't find anywhere where she talks about a special role for them in the future. Now, I'm not saying they won't have one. It's not impossible. But to insist on it and to make them the center of it is saying far more than she says and is certainly saying far more than the Bible says. So let's not be speculative about that when we're trying to talk about well-founded prophecies. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.